Hello and welcome to Grace Church Vienna. Today we have Klaus Potsch with us, who will continue his series through the book of Daniel in chapter 3. During today's sermon, we will study a very famous passage in the Bible that many Christians know from the childhood days. As we see how King Nebuchadnezzar wanted to punish those who were not willing to submit to idolatry, we will learn more about showing civil courage, not sacrificing principles, and trusting God in times of testing. Good morning, everybody. I think I should not need to introduce myself. I looked at my computer and I realized since 2016, I've been here, I think, about 15 times in the pulpit. So <laughs> you know my style and you know what, what, what kind of a sermon you would, can expect. Let's start with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for giving us your word, and I pray that your spirit will open our eyes and our hearts and learn from the lesson that you uh, sent us today, and um, I pray that I would use the right words to pass it on. In Jesus' name, amen. So... In the classic period of German literature, there was a period called Sturm und Drangzeit, in English, Storm and Impulse. In that time, Friedrich Schiller wrote a drama called Wilhelm Tell, the story of which Verdi used as a uh, sujet for an opera. And you know the, the march. Um, in it, the bailiff in German is the Landvogt, yeah? Gessler, not Gewessler, yeah? Gessler, um, of the canton in Switzerland, set up a pole with a hat on it. Everybody had to greet that hat, but Wilhelm Tell did not. So that is the short content of this drama. There's a similarity in our chapter 3 of the book of Daniel. Let us recapitulate what happened in chapter 2. Daniel interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream... And, and that nobody else could interpret. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain with a, without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold, the great God had made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present him to an offering and a fragrance incense. The king answered to Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and, and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. This was Daniel chapter 2, verses 45 to 47. The golden hat was the Babylonian empire that fell, with Nebuchadnezzar being the ruler of it. Not much later in chapter 3... Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width 6 cubits, and he set up the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So, the picture on the side is an elongated Oscar statue. It had the shape of a person, and normally, if you take my proportions, 
This is 60, this is 180, so this is 1 to 3, and this was 1 to 10. And it was set up in a plane, so visibly all around, and can imagine, with pl probably made out of wood, therefore the, dim the dimensions, gold-plated, and um, picture yourself, the sun shining on it, reflecting all around. It must have been really gorgeous. People do not learn from history, from what they have experienced in their lifetime, don't they? Normally not. Nebuchadnezzar is a prime example. He must have forgotten that the head of the statue was his empire, and it fell at some point in time. That did not bother him, because he might have thought that since he did not experience uproar, everything is fine. What the Bible tells us is that God created man in his image. And what did man do? Man created God in his image. The ultimate rebellion, man inventing his own gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces, the nomenclatura, to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up. Then the nomenclatura assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Nomenclatura, that's an, an expression that I'm using from the Soviet era. That's a layer of society that had everything, had access to goodies, and then the rest of the population did not. So there must have been all the creme de la creme of Babylon assembled, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar initiated the worship. And he gave the command. Then the herald loudly proclaimed to you, the command is given, O peoples, nations of men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kind, kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whosoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast in the midst of the furnace, uh, fire, blazing fire. This was a solemn occasion. The nomenclatura was present and music, probably all kinds of instruments at that time. I call it the BSO. It's not normally the abbreviation for the Boston Symphony Orchestra, but this is the Babylon Symphony Orchestra, with all the music instruments at that time available were um, together. And what was the reason for it? Nebuchadnezzar was very intelligent. He knew how to run an empire. He was one of the world's greatest architects, statesmen, soldiers, and strategists. He was pulling together his nation in an act of unity. So what do you need for a unity and Nathan anthem? That was the music that the BSO played. And you need a common thing that binds everybody together. That's religion. So he set up a worship, a statue, and everybody had to worship, so everybody was obliged to follow. 
Unfortunately for him, he created a conflict between worship of the true God and the worship of himself. What happened? One day, the BSO played. Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the BSO, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up. The people obeyed, but not all. Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, the three Hebrews that were known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego by their Babylonian names, refused to worship the golden image. Those three men held high positions in the empire. Remember, Daniel did as well, but Daniel is not mentioned in that chapter. Very interesting. So these three were part of the nomenclatura. They were in high positions. And the, nomen the local nomenclatura did not like it. Can you imagine? Picture this in Austria. We have a Landeshauptleiter and two or three are from Italy or from Hungary or whatever. Would you like that? <laughs> we thought, this is Austria. Austria should run the country. So they thought, well, um, in, the, uh, in the refusal of worshiping the golden image, an opportunity to get rid of them. Certain Chaldeans brought this to Nebuchadnezzar's attention. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. O you king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the BSO is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Again, the command and the threat repeated. And they accused them, of course. For this reason, um, there are certain Jews from you, uh, whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. The king was enraged. Why were the, uh, the Chaldeans tattletailing? The Chaldeans were evident envious of the positions, the young Jews, and therefore accused them. The, accu the accusations were in particular, these men, O king, have disregarded you. The wrong accusation. In Matthew twenty-two twenty-one, where our Lord said, render to Caesar the things that are... Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. This was their principle, which they followed, not the command that um, Nebuchadnezzar gave. They serve not thy gods. That's true, of course. And they don't worship the image which you set up. That's also true. This is amazing. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew the price of disobedience. Can you imagine? They considered the principle, their principles so high that they didn't care what happened to them. And they were in contrast to the mass of people. Everybody was falling down. Just picture in a mosque, seeing only the backs, yeah? people on the ground, and some three Jews standing up and not bending their, uh, their, uh, their back. 
They got the positions from Nebuchadnezzar. They depended on him. The whole career was at stake, but still they did not obey. They could lose everything. And what else then? Ask George Clooney what then. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, at the moment you hear the sounds of the BSO to fall down and worship the image that I've made very well. But if you do not worship, you will Im immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Critical line. The three were immediately summoned before the king. The king repeated his th command and his threat and the consequences. And without hesitation... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, they didn't say, Oh, king, live forever. said, No. This is our um, standpoint. I, um, we do not need to give an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hands, O king. But even if it does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The reaction, um, uh, reaction of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was not surprising. They were Jews. They knew the Ten Commandments, and of course they followed them. The first two of the commandments deserve a closer look at this point. I am the Lord... Your God, we're reading from Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 2. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And further, you shall not make for yourself an idol. And the rest is what I call BIPOC text, which is when you get a, a prescription, a medicine, there's paper inside. Yeah? This is the instructions for how to follow and take the prescription. The consequences and the blessings of the uh, commandment. At first glance, Shetrach, Meshach, and Abednego were between the rock and a hard place. Who were they to obey, God or Nebuchadnezzar? For them, the answer was clear. They followed God. Our decision, our attitudes, and our behaviors are defined by only two things. External pressure, in that case from the king, or internal principle, their moral conviction. And this is what they followed. They knew that idolatry was unacceptable to God. The second commandment was that. They knew that they would not please God and bow down to the image of God. This would be idolatry which they dislike. Scripture describes idolatry in these terms. It is an abomination to God, see that in Deuteronomy 7.25, hateful to God, Deuteronomy 16.22, vain and foolish, Psalm 115, 
bloody, Ezekiel 23, abominable, 1 Peter 4, unprofitable, Judges 10.14, irrational, Romans 1, and defiling, Ezekiel 27. Is idolatry just a phenomenon of an ancient culture? I guess not. Idolatry is everything you put between you and God. If God has not the first place in your life, you have an idol in your life. Very often you can see it, or it's manifested by humanism. Ego, me, me, me. Man is the epitome of creation, says the evolutionist. Isn't that a contradiction? Yeah. Everything evolved and man is, the, is on top. Idolatry makes us forget God, to go astray from God, pollute the name of God, defile the sanctuary of God, estrange themselves from God and forsake God, hate God and provoke God. So it's very, a very serious thing. And there are consequences, of course. There's judicial death, dreadful judgment which ends in death, banishment, exclusion from heaven, and eternal torment. So, would you like to, uh, to experience that eternal torment? Torment, sometimes you think, oh, they're like the, the, the three Jews in, uh, thrown in the furnace fire. But I think the torment is, could be different. It's absolute silence and there's nothing. Forever, you're alone. There's no God, you cannot communicate, nothing. You're just by yourself. This is also a torment, Einzelhaft, yeah, single confinement. When it comes to idolatry, you are to do three things. Flee, says 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Avoid idols, 1 Corinthians 10, 10 to 20. Have no fellowship with all um, at the table of demons and stay away from them. And 1 John 5, 21. My little children, keep yourselves from idols. An idol is, as I said already, because anything you, um, you present before God. It could be your car, it could be your hobby, it could be your house, and so on, in general possessions. Colossians 3 says, covetousness is idolatry, if you want more. Yeah? Like Paul Getty was asked once, how much is enough for you? Just one dollar more. <laughs> so, we come to, to the theory. The re a reaction of Shetach, Meshach, and Abednego is interesting. They stood by the conviction and left it to God to rescue them or not. An open prayer is always a good thing. You cannot nail down God, please do that, and then I'm happy. Sometimes it's interesting what is not mentioned in the text. So let me expand a little bit here. As believers in God, they probably have had sought counsel from Daniel. Daniel refused to go along with the Babylonian culture. Remember chapter 1? It was about the food. And they also probably prayed, meaning they sought divine support. That brings me to the topic of theodicy. 
which is translated, how can a loving God afflict good people? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were certainly good people. And they had um, a bad situation or death in front of them. You probably have heard the words, ask in my name and everything will be given to you. This is a very dangerous philosophy and a shortcut to understand when prayer works and when prayer does not work. Uh, in the home group, we, my wife and I, with other two, uh, other two couples, read the book by Philip, Philip Yancey, Prayer. Read it. 500 pages. And I tell you, you, hear, you read this and you read that and you have very good insight about prayer. But there's not a recipe in there how to pray. I mean, directly how to pray and you will get what you want. This is not in there. So, when asked in my name, often is quoted, I remember two weeks ago, I heard this from this pulpit here, whatever you ask in my name that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That's John 14, 13 and 14. John 15, 16 says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. So whatever you ask of my Father in my name, he may give to you. John 16, 23 and 24 in that day you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until you have not asked for anything in my name, ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Very positive. See, looks, sounds like a recipe, but be careful. Then James, here's a verse, James 3, 4, 3. You ask and you do not receive. That happens. Because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. How then should we pray? Let's look at the Lord's Prayer, which he taught his disciples in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 and following. This then is how you should pray. Here we get a model prayer. It's our Father or the Lord's Prayer. And let's look at the start, at the beginning. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, done on earth as it is in heaven. For many, many years I have not included that in my prayers. And I lately started to, once I realized that there's something missing. His will be done. Do we know his will? Sometimes it's clear, sometimes it's vague. And we should pray that we would be used for building his kingdom. If we do that, we would receive a lot. And it is an open prayer. As I said before, you cannot force God to give you something what you want. We pray from our perspective, but as James said, better you pray in such a way that you put yourself or look at the situation with God's eyes. What, how should I pray? What should I be, pray for? 
simple a case study, and I must admit, when you see in the Old Testament stories, like the one of the three Jewish young men, they seem to be perfect. Yeah? It's a model for us. And I give you um, as a, a model that is not perfect. That's me. Well, my daughter, younger daughter, studied in, in the UK. Got pregnant, and it took some time for her to come home with the baby. And the problem here in Austria is they are not married. A single mother, unmarried, yeah, with child, has sole custody. Not so in the UK. The UK law transfers to Austria in that case. If the father and the mother are both on the birth certificate, they have common custody. So, here in Austria, so I asked um, um, a lawyer, what are you doing? Common custody, one says A, like the child goes to that school, and the other uh, a part of, of, um, of the parent says, no, I don't like that, I take the child out. Yeah. And it, that could go on, and who is suffering? The child. This is nonsense from the, from the legislative. An army cannot be run by two equally positioned generals. One has to have the last word. And we're now in a court case that lasts more than three years. We prayed, and the more we prayed, the worse the situation we got. We, my wife and the daughter spent a lot of time sorting out emails, putting together lists of arguments for the lawyer and so on. Sitting at home at the computer and, and outside was blue sky, no cloud. Would be nice to do something together. We had to do that. And, but if you have to deal with a narcissist, good luck. And for me personally, what shook me so much was as we prayed... And there were, in these three years, were four situations where I thought, okay, I have hope. I was, one of them was, I was sitting in church, listening to the sermon of a friend of mine. It was uh, Romans, I think, Romans 12, where it says, um, it quoted, there's a quote from the Old Test, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So how should we, we should not try to, attack the Father, but leave it to the Lord. Leave it open to God how he reacts. But the four times when I had hope, the next day he did something and my hope was destroyed. So I started reading Habakkuk and I even prayed here from this pulpit uh, on Habakkuk. Similar situation. And, well, it was hard and I must say, I'm a friend of mine whom I was in serious discussion about the question of the Odyssey, as I told you how good, bad things happen to good people, and I thought, I'm a good person, how, should, how do I deserve that? And he said, very often I didn't get that at the beginning, well, it's an educational process, reads Paul in Romans, and says, well, trials produce this, also James, perseverance, and so on, and then finally hope. And 
Just recently, I realized that I got the lesson already in my young years when I was a student and was doing athlete, athletics, track and field. I was a hurdler, 110 meters, not, not a bad one in Austria. The trainer sent me over the hurdles, and guess how often I banged my knee? This is a trial, yeah? But what, is it, what, what are you running for, for the finish line? At some point, the win. We haven't won yet. The case is not solved. I don't know how things will develop. Well, that's my case. And I must say, I'm getting slowly to the point where the three young men were. And they were at the, they had their considerations. Like, in Job, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. It's a question, do I trust God that he will act and come up with the best solution? Or Paul in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Did the three young men know this verse already in the Old Testament, what would be written in the new one? Or Matthew 10, whosoever sh shall confess me before men, him will I confess before my Father who is in heaven. Or Mark 8:38, whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous generation, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed. And Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms, the, the Concil von Worms, said, here I stand and I can do no other. This was used in a cartoon of a DDR citizen um, at the autobahn. His trabe broke down and he said, here I stand, I can do no other. So, now we're coming to the ex execution of the situation. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath and his facial expression was altered toward Shedrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heard. I wondered what kind of thermometer they, they used there. He commanded certain valiant uh, warriors who were in this army to tie up Shedrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into, their, into the furnace of blazing fire. These men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes and were cast into the midst of the furning blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent, the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shedrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shedrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the blazing fire, st still tied up. They were dressed up in fine clothes, as probably the rulers of the provinces were at that time, but dressed to be killed. Nebuchadnezzar watched the show, sitting at a comfortable position in the distance so that it didn't get too hot, able to see what's going on. But then the miracle happened. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, was it not three men were cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of gods, of the gods. 
something unexpected had happened. He, Nebuchadnezzar sees four and not three. He sees that they were not bound, they were loose. They were not lying down, burning, they were walking around. They were not burning up or roasting, they were completely unhurt, completely intact. And the fourth one looks like the son of God, and they weren't looking for the exit. They were just apparently patiently waiting, enjoying each other's company. Crazy, crazy situation. Nebuchadnezzar recognized a supernatural spiritual, spiritual being that he would equate with an angel. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out. You servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. The nomenclatura gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of the fire even come upon them. In preparation to this sermon, I used to listen to the, to the sermon of uh, John MacArthur, and he gave at this point an interesting example. He was a student and had little money, so he bought at a welfare uh, shop a coat that was in a, from a house that burned down, and he said, I could never get rid of that smell. <laughs> but it was cheap. Nebuchadnezzar stopped the torture and called Shetach, Meshach, and Abednego out. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shetach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. This reaction is the same as in chapter 2, where it says, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a ruler of mysteries. Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 26, The Most High God, he did not abolish polytheism. He just put the God of the three Jews on top of the pyramid of the hierarchy of their gods. Was that enough? No, for our God not. God wants is a jealous God. He wants to be worshipped alone. And in verse 28, they yielded their bodies. It reminds me of Romans 12, 1, where it says, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice and be not conformed to this world. Shetrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not conform to the world, to Nebuchadnezzar's world. And the king issued another decree. Oops. Therefore, I make a decree. No. Then Nebuchadnezzar, I read it. Therefore, I make a decree of that any people, nation, or tongue that respects any offense against the God of Shedrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap. 
inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king caused Shedach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. By the way, something interesting here. Part of this scripture is still practiced today. The Israelis destroy the houses of Palestinian terrorists. Tear it down to the ground. The king did not... The, um, the reason why I left the statue on every slide... It reminded us, I wanted to say this in the beginning to keep your attention um, um, awake. He did not abolish or cancel his command from the beginning of the ch chapter to worship the statue. He only put said, well, the Hebrew God is the top God now, and that's it. Not enough. So the question is, in the, and going through the book of Daniel, when will Nebuchadnezzar learn the lesson? For us, what should we do and what should we learn from this chapter? You show civil courage. My father was a prime example of civil courage. I remember when he told me in the Second World War, he saw that an officer unjustly treated a colleague. He spoke up, and what was the consequence? He was sent to Russia to the front. Do not sacrifice your God's principles. Keep your faith in spite of not knowing the outcome. Very important. Leave it to God what he will do. Be ready for a sacrifice that may hurt. You may come out of the test unharmed. Unharmed, you may. But some do not look at the martyrs that were burnt at the stake, they were burnt in Rome, they were thrown in front of the lions. They did not give in, but they died. But what I tell you, I cannot prove it, I have not experienced it. They were then in a better place and got their share um, of eternal life and being with God. So thank you for listening.